Hello and welcome to Emerge, Evolve, Lead, a podcast for people in recovery from addiction who want to be better leaders. I got clean and sober when I was 24, and then I started my corporate career. After several decades, I left that job and created Emerge Leadership Academy, where I train leaders and coach people in recovery who are ready to step up in their career. My name is Maureen Rossgem, and I'll be your host. Hello, and welcome back to Emerge Evolve Lead. Sober since, wow, July 18th, 1987, we're just coming up on 35 years, is my guest today, Candace Platter. She has her master's in addiction therapy and has a private practice specializing in helping families deal with the traumas that they've struggled with and growing up with or dealing with addiction. Welcome to the podcast, Candice. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Maureen. Hi, everyone. I'm glad to have you on. And first, why don't you just tell everybody where you're from and what do you do for a living? I mean, I just said that a little <laughs> bit, but you know what your family sure. life is like, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm in Vancouver, Canada. Okay. Which to me is one of, if not the most beautiful place in the world. Ooh. And um, and I have a private practice here. And I work primarily with families. I also work with people who are struggling with addiction, but I work primarily with the families who have a loved one that's addicted because there's so little help for them, you know, and they struggle and suffer right alongside the addict. And there's a lot of help for the addicts, but there's not a lot of help for the families. So that's what I do. Yeah. You know, it really is true. Like we have, so many of us have a 12 step program. It's such a great thing, but not everybody fits into the Al-Anon model. And there's a lot of people that don't really get the kind of help and focus that they, or the tools even that they need without going to therapy. So good for you for having that practice out there. That's super important. Thank you. Yeah. And I work worldwide. So it's not just about people who are in Vancouver. It's families all over the world. I have clients all over the world. So thank you for Zoom. I know. (laughs) I know. And thank you. Almost like one of the good things that came out of the pandemic, because now everybody knows how to use it. Nobody's afraid of it anymore. It's so great. That's the same with training. I am a trainer and I used to only go on site and now I do training virtually and it's so good because not only do I not have to travel, but neither does everybody else. The companies save a lot of money by just um, having virtual meetings on Zoom. And it's a lot of fun. You can really still be quite interactive. Yes. And you can meet people from all over the world. It's such a cool thing. I love it. Agreed. Okay. So let's um, dive into your story a little bit. You've been sober a long time. Uh, Same as as me. So you must've got sober in your twenties, but let's start before then. What made you figure out you were an an alcoholic and what happened and how did you get into recovery? Yeah. Um, I'll try to nutshell it because we don't have hours. Um, So I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease in uh, the early 70s. And at that point, it was the new disease on the block. Like Mm. the doctors didn't know what to do. They kept telling me it was in my head, which it was not. Um, And they they really didn't know what to do for me. So what they did was they 
they threw a lot of really addictive medication at me and addiction was not on the radar at that point, certainly not the way it is now. So they were giving me Valium and all of those drugs. They were giving me codeine and oxys and morphine and all kinds of stuff. I mean, Crohn's, Crohn's is a very, when it's, I mean, I'm a lot better now. I still have it. I've had it for almost 50 years now, but I know how to manage it. So it's Mm -hmm. much better, but it can be, incredibly painful, debilitating, depressing, embarrassing. It's a horrible disease to have, um, or it can be. And so, you know, those drugs, as well as pot, I smoked a lot of pot during those mm-hmm. years as well, because it helped. And I liked it, you know. So, so, you know, I, I liked being buzzed. I liked being high. I liked it. Um, so, and yes, I did inhale. I like to say that too, <laughs> a la Bill Clinton. Um, but uh, so yeah. So you weren't so, much of a drinker. It was mostly pot no, and drugs. Alcohol hurt my stomach. Okay. Yep. I would, I would drink if I didn't have, if I ran out of things to, you know, if it was all that was left. Yeah. But no, it was very painful for me to drink. Um, so, so if you, if you fast forward about 15 years of using these substances, I was basically an opioid addict mm-hmm. for 15 years without realizing it at all. I just, but I reached a bottom where I was um, basically suicidal because if you look at Valium drugs, benzodiazepines, and opioids, they're all depressants mm-hmm. in the human system, and so is weed. So it was pot. Right. So, so I was, was alcohol and alcohol. So I was using it and using it and using it to the point where I didn't really know if I wanted to live anymore. I felt like I really didn't want to live anymore. And the Crohn's was still really bad. So my life was a mess. I was working, I was functioning, you know, but badly. I was so you were badly. I am, imagine like any other thing that we're addicted to that it gets you need more and more yeah. to get the same effects. Did you That's, at some point start abusing it and overusing it or it was, you more- know, I, I didn't really that much because I could keep getting it. They just kept giving it to me. So yeah. I, I'm not, I don't remember using a lot more, I probably used more than I needed to, to, to really deal with the pain and stuff. But I don't think I, but I was as addicted as anybody else. And, um, <laughs> Yeah, you couldn't not a, use it. I couldn't not function. use it. Yeah, exactly right. I could not not use it. Um, so I um, wasn't sure I was going to stay alive. Mm. And I was at that place. And I had a choice to make. You know, was I going to die? Or was I going to learn how to live? And I didn't know at the time that I was going to have to live without those substances. Uh. Right? It's um, a hard thing to the, face. I Yes, it was. I made the choice to reach out for help. I called the crisis center in Vancouver and somebody there absolutely saved my life just by listening to me and respecting me. And this person told me that I had a choice, that I could, I could learn how to not use. Uh, it was amazing. It was such an empowering thing to think about. Like an uh, angel so, in your life. So I signed myself in to 
uh, a psych ward here in, in Vancouver. And I was in that place for about four weeks. And that was a place that looked like the old fashioned cuckoo's nest, you know, the gray cement oh walls. And yeah. That's what it looked like. And I, I just wasn't sure if I had my clothes and could go out in the world. I wasn't sure what I was going to do to myself. So I made the decision to voluntarily go in. I was 37. Okay. And did yeah. you have a family at that time? My family has, you know, my family was one of addiction as well and self-absorption. And they weren't really very interested in what was going on for me. I was basically alone in the world okay. at that point. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So no, I would say no, I didn't really. So um, it was easy to check yourself in. It wasn't like you were leaving a husband and kids at home or and no, that sort of thing. I, I didn't have a husband and kids. Um, right. I could, I could just go and do that. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think it's so remarkable when people who do have families like that, really reach out for the help they need regardless because their families need them to do that. Actually, their families need them, but they need them to be healthy. So when I was in the psych ward, I met a couple of people who um, were also trying to get off drugs and alcohol and we'd sit around a table and we go and then we pass it as if we actually had one and we, you know, we'd act high and we'd do crazy things, but it was fun. And, and it, it, it passed the time in that place. And it bonded um, you. It bonded us. And they were going to narcotics anonymous meetings across the street at the nurses residence every single day at noon. And I went with them. I started going with them. And that Perfect. was the beginning of my recovery. I sat in meetings. I bawled my eyes out. I just cried and cried. There were all these bikers that were totally intimidating with tattoos and leather and chains. And, you know, they'd be swearing when they were sharing their stuff, you know, and, and, and I would just sit and weep. Basically, I was so depressed. They would come to me and they would hug me and they would say, keep coming back. Yeah. So I kept going back. Yeah. So I spent about the first 10 years of my recovery in 12-step programs. And then um, I had a little trouble with the philosophy of it. You know, we can talk about that or not. But um, I, I found myself veering from that. But I've still been in recovery for, you know. Yeah, you know, a years. lot of people seem to veer off at about 10 years. You know, I I didn't know that. Yeah, Yeah. I did myself. I did not go to meetings for probably I got I was about nine years sober when I stopped and Mm -hmm. I started back up again at about 18 years. Um, But I have a really I have a really close knit women's support group of there's like six of us and we had been meeting for years already before then. And so even though I wasn't going to meetings, I still had them every month we met and we talked and it was my, (laughs) my support group. Plus my husband is also in recovery and he was a drug and alcohol counselor. He was in the field. And so I just felt like I lived the program. I didn't need those meetings to stay sober every day. Yeah. But I I went back and now it's just for fun and camaraderie and community. You know, that's great. Yeah. yeah. And helping for me, I, I'm working with people every day and they talk about like all day, every day, they talk about how a meeting is two or more people. 
yeah. who, uh, you know, so I feel like I'm in meetings all the time. You are. <laughs> recovery meetings, which I love. I love talking about it. I love helping people with it. Um, the, the problem that I started to have at about 10 years was, you know, when the languaging of the steps, which I know nobody is supposed to change. There's kind of a dogma with that, um, that we are powerless over our addiction. And I, I remember sitting there thinking, I've got 10 years. I've just taken a cake. Yeah. I, I'm not powerless over this. I right? know. And, and so as time went on, I just, I just needed to move in a different direction. But that program saved my life. And there are so many wonderful things about 12-step programs. The, the, the camaraderie, the community, the sponsorship the clean and sober dances and yeah, things, yeah. you know, you learn True. how to socialize and maybe even have sex, you know, clean and sober, right? Who thought that could ever First happen? First time was so, crazy. Yeah, you know, so, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I think it's a wonderful program and I, I just needed to, to, uh, I, I felt like I was coming from more of a place of choice that I was choosing to stay clean and sober. That was, that was what I was doing every day. I was making that choice and I still make that choice every day. It's not as conscious a choice. Of course, I don't sit there and say today I'm going to stay clean, but I know that if I don't look after myself, if I don't take care of myself in a whole variety of ways that I could be out there after 35 years, I know that. So I'm really careful and I make my choices and I, I know what I'm doing and I have people who love me and who I love. And like, that's really, that's really what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. And so, all right. So why don't we, um, I would love to hear more about, so you got sober, you, you stayed in this facility for a little while to get on your feet. Then you, you sort of quote graduated from that and got into the real world. What did you do about your, you know, in your career? How did your career progress and, and to where you were starting? Did you go back to school and get your degrees? Mm. How did that okay. happen? Yeah. You know, I went to treatment. I went to rehab, um, 28 day rehab. Uh, and it was, I remember my key counselor and I were sitting outside and she said to me, you know, if you can just get your shit together, you could be a really good counselor. Ah, <laughs> I had she never put the thought, thought in your head. Yeah. She, she put the thought in my head and I, I was too sick physically, emotionally for probably about three years to, to work. I, I was on a long-term disability. I needed to clean up to see how sick I was and, and to really start getting, you know, so, um, when I was about three years clean, I was ready to go back to work. And I really wanted to work in the addiction field. I really wanted to give back what I had been given. And um, I got a job working as an addictions counselor in uh, the area of Vancouver that's called downtown East Side. And that is the lowest income area in all of Canada. And most of the addicts, alcoholics, homeless, people with mental health all congregate in that area in Canada. Like it's uh, not, it's a skid row on steroids kind of thing. Oh my. Um, and I, I started working there with the addicts and alcoholics down there and I loved it. I loved working with them and I um, 
<clears throat> yeah, I, I, I wanted to be able to help them. And as I was working with them, my, their, their families started to call me. Sorry, my mind wandered just a minute ago. Um, but my, my, the families of the, of the clients I was working with uh, started to call and just say, we are at our wits end. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know what to do. We love them so much, but they're driving us crazy and we're afraid they're going to die and all of this stuff. And I had no idea what to say to them. Wow. You know, but I started seeing them. I started having sessions with them and I heard things that made me see um, a pattern of behaviors that the loved ones were doing that were, was not helpful at all to the addicts or the healthy to them. Yeah. Or healthy for them. Right. Or anybody else in their family, you know? So, so I started working with them. I started, you know, it kind of dropped in my lap. I didn't go out seeking it, but I loved it. I loved being able to work with the families. And as I worked with the families, maybe because my family wasn't very close and they weren't very interested in my recovery or my addiction, the fact that there were family members out there who were interested and loved their addict that way, um, it was great for me. It was healing for me to work with them. And <clears throat> then that's how sometimes we just develop our own family in recovery. We do. Right. We do. So, we do our own healing. Yeah. So I have a question about this. So, yeah. you know how we often say that people who addicts themselves, regardless of what you're addicted to, yeah. there's not a super high rate of success. It's like one in four really gets long-term into long-term recovery. And I wonder how it is for the families, for the people that are enabling, once you learn, you know, once you learn your habits, are there long-term changes that can be measured that are very good, high rates of, yeah, good. Tell yes. Me. Yes. As soon as the families start to, um, to develop helping behaviors, difference between helping and enabling, once they start doing what they really need to do for their addicts and, you know, what, what loved ones need to do is what's right for their addicted loved ones, even if it's hard for them to do that. And often it is hard for them. They're just as addicted. They're just addicted to the addicts or the addict's addiction. It's like they're riding in the same roller coaster car. And when the addict is doing well, when the addict's up there, they're doing well. When the addict isn't doing very well, they're not okay. Right. So as soon as they start to develop different patterns of behavior and start to say no and start to set boundaries and have consequences that they follow through on, which is the most healthy thing you can do, the most loving thing I think you can do for somebody in addiction, um, then the addicts in the situation kind of sit up and take notice. It's like, oh, uh oh, this isn't working for me as well as it used to. I could lose everything. I could lose my family. Uh, maybe I better think about this and see if I want to do something different. And that's what starts to happen. Okay. Yeah. They, they change the cog in the wheel, right? Yeah. Yes. But it doesn't happen in every single family. Sometimes no, the addicts not. just won't get help. They just right. won't. Or they die. But, but in, or they die. Yeah. 
unfortunately. But I know. In, in those kinds of situations, the families can still have a better life. You know, so tell me, I mean, one of the things that I've experienced, even in my own um, child rearing, is at one point having to say to my child that behavior is no longer acceptable in this house. You can't yes. be here anymore. And if you're willing to clean up your act, we'll, you know, we'll send you and even pay for like a halfway house but you can't keep living here. That was like one of the hardest things we ever had to do yep. it is like ask them <laughs> to leave. And so what do you, what kind yep. of advice do you give that advice to people all the time? Cause it's a lot of times it's parents who have kids who are the addicts. Yeah, I, I do basically because I believe it's the most loving thing you can do for somebody. If you're enabling somebody to stay in the addiction, how is that a loving act? Like that cannot be a loving act. I know. You know? So, so, but the way to do it is to be able to say to the addict that you love so much. We love you so much. We love you so much that we are not willing to support you in your addiction any longer. We're not going to give you money. We're not going to let you live here. We're not, you know, we're not going to support you in our, in your addiction because we love you. And it, and it breaks can't our watch hearts. It. It's right. so right. We can't watch it. And, and the addicts, you know, sometimes they don't understand. They've been so self-absorbed. I mean, I remember being self-absorbed that way. They're so self-absorbed that they really don't, have a clue about how what they're doing is affecting other people and the loved ones are many times um you know what we could call codependent which means that they put other people's needs ahead of their own um they're people pleasers i'm a recovering people pleaser me too. i don't do it anymore much much because it feels really icky to do it but well, you know the thing that's icky so let me just interject because i this is one of the hardest. I hate that word, tough love. I, I freaking hate that. I know a lot of people, concept. you know, tough, tough love is love though. It's, it's gotten a bad rap and it is a form of love and it's a really important form of love. I, I agree. I agree. Thank you for yeah. saying that because it yeah. needs to be heard, but yeah, my, but from a place of love. Yeah. Yep. And, and my, <clears throat> the hard part is that I know if I quote, shut you off, or shut you down from getting whatever you get from me that I've been enabling, that you, my loved one, is going to feel a lot of pain. They're going to mm -hmm. feel abandoned. They're going to feel rejected. And that from the, you know, I feel like a perpetrator and I suddenly become what it feels like I become a victimizer. And so I'm putting all this on myself, but I know because I've worked with clients like this who cannot mm. see that they are helping when you can help somebody hit their bottom faster by feeling the pain, then it's yeah. better. It's <laughs> better, better, better than they can get it on the better. other side of it. The more you I, enable, the longer the uncomfortable uh, pain is going to last. Well, and the more likely the addict is to die by his own hand or out there, you know, yeah, yeah. but I really, really like what you're saying. Um, what we need to remember, what family members need to know is that 
the addicts and anybody listening who's been in active addiction, who's now in recovery, you know, we were feeling so much pain in our addiction anyway. And that's why we were using our addiction to begin with. Right. To not have to feel that pain. So to me, the counseling isn't about for when I work with addicted people, it's not about, okay, so what are you using? How much are you drinking? You know, what are you putting into your arm or up your nose? Like, what are you doing? No, it's about what's the pain that you've been feeling. Let's get underneath, underneath. this. Oh, Let's get yeah. underneath it and really work with it and find some other ways to deal with life because that's why addicts use. They don't want to have to deal with life on life's terms. Right. Yeah? Right. So when families can help addicts not, you know, they're going to feel a different kind of pain when the families are, are, are starting to change. They're going to feel a different kind of pain. But if they understand, if the addicts are told over and over, we're doing this because we love you, this is not a punishment. We're not doing this because we want you out of our lives or, you know, but we can't do this anymore. We can't watch you do this anymore. And we don't want to see you in addiction. So as soon as you're ready to change this, like, don't waste our time and tell us that you're ready when you're not. Right. But when you're ready, let us know and we will support you in the in whatever ways we can. The truth we'll is right there. Right. The sooner you shut them off, the sooner you get onto that, the quicker exactly. they're going to know how much you do love them. And the more exactly. they're going to realize that, you know what I used to say all the time, if you have somebody that's been doing the same behavior for um, you know, three years or four years, and you have somebody who's been doing the same behavior for 20 years, it's going to be a lot harder to change the longer, yeah. you know, and there's a lot more momentum, right? Going on that yeah. yeah. And yeah. so if you already know, like I got some people would say, well, Maureen, like I had a, what we call a high bottom and I didn't experience, like I had my own incredible depths of pain. Trust me, I had self-loathing, mm -hmm. I had self-hatred, I had, yep. I just couldn't stand my life anymore, but I hadn't had a DUI, unbelievably, miraculously, I never had a DUI, I hadn't mm -hmm. lost a job specifically, I've had to quit a few before I got fired, but you know what I'm saying, like, yep. and, and the, but the bottom line is, I knew too much. I knew too much. And I knew my mom was in Al-Anon because my dad was a recovery or uh, in, he was an alcoholic and he wasn't even, he had gone to treatment, but he wasn't really in recovery. He, he had sober made the choice. He, no, yeah. he, yeah. he didn't really relate to a lot of the people in the program or whatnot. Anyways, along yeah. the short of it is I'm not like them. I'm not like those people, but I knew too much and I knew it wasn't going to get better. So the earlier you can get in, the easier it is to change your lifestyle, to change your, you know, your, to have that transformation, you know, the longer you're out there, the harder it is sometimes. So it isn't really tough love. It isn't right. really, you know, it's love. It's I'm, I'm going to have boundaries. I'm going to respect myself. I'm going to respect you. It's, it's self-respecting love more than it's tough love, but it right. is tough. And, and, and we need to be tough sometimes. It's tough because it's hard and it's tough because we need to set boundaries and we need to maintain the boundaries, which is the harder part. Like setting the boundary is much easier than maintaining it. 
when the going gets rough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're going to just wrap up in a few minutes, but I want to ask you, um, so what advice do you have for somebody who might be listening to this and knows that they really need to do the tough thing? What's your best advice um, to people that are dealing with people who who have, who are stuck in their addictions? Yeah. Um, It may sound like I'm blowing my own horn, but I wrote a book and the book won several awards, which was so surprising to me because as an addict, I never thought I would ever do anything that was going to help anybody. It just never even occurred to me. But the book is called Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself, if people are able to see this. Well, they're not going to see this actual because they're, they're only listening, but I'm going to put the show notes for sure. Tell us the name of the book. Okay. So it's Loving an Addict, Loving Yourself, the top 10 survival tips for loving someone with an addiction. And so it's for the families, the loved ones of people with addiction. Don't give it to your addicts because they hate addicts who are still in active addiction. Hate my book because I'm talking about boundaries. I'm talking about learning to respect yourself and, you know, translating that into respecting your addict. And um, I, I would suggest getting a copy of that, which is on Amazon in every country that has Amazon. It's also Great. in many libraries, so you might be able to get it in your library if they oh, don't have it. Good. Ask for it. Yeah, yeah. Just ask for them to order it. When did you um, write it? I wrote it in twenty ten. It was published in twenty ten. Perfect. Yeah, okay, so about twelve years ago. Um, and you know, some people say it's also like a parenting handbook about how to be able to because you need to change what you're doing with the addict, or they will never change. If nothing changes nothing changes. Right. So yeah. something has to change. And it usually is you, the loved one first, because they're not going to come to you and say, please set some healthy boundaries for me. It's a thankless job until yeah. they're in recovery. And then they say, thank you. It's like, you really just have to recognize the symptoms of addict behavior. And yep. even though, you know, I was an addict myself, now, 30 years later or 20 years later, it, you, you get away from it for long enough and there's a different generation you might be raising. It's, it, yeah. it manifests diff- a little bit differently, right? Yeah. Different kind of drugs and different things that they're That's right. with. And it's much more dangerous out it's there much than more it was dangerous. when you and I were there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what I would say, there's a couple of other things I would say is don't give up. Even if things are going poorly, even if you're feeling like you just don't want to do this anymore, try really hard not to give up, reach out for help. I have a company called Love With Boundaries because we need to love with boundaries. And we offer a free, no obligation at all, 30-minute consultation call, usually on Zoom, and we'll hear what's going on for you and we'll tell you how we can help you. And if that's a fit, then we go forward. If it isn't, there's no problem. Right. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire uh, just to give us a little bit of information about what's going on for you. And then we will contact you right away because we know that addiction doesn't wait, you know, and, uh, and, and we can help your family. We can wow, help that's so everybody. Great. We'll work with everybody in the circle of love. Thank you so much. Yeah, Yeah. what you're doing is such important work. And we have to keep getting out there and letting people know because 
Uh, and I'm so glad that we're not hiding behind anonymity anymore, that we are nope. telling people there is long-term recovery filled with life and love and leadership and all of it is possible. Um, but you got to you got to do it. You got to do the deeper work, you know, on yeah. yourself and, and, um, and you can help other people. You can help so many other people. So thank you, yeah. Candace, so much for what you're, you're doing. Thanks for coming you're on welcome. the podcast. Thank you. Bye everyone. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. You can visit us at EmergeLeadershipAcademy.com to take the quiz to find out what animal best represents your leadership style. And until next week, remember, you have so many leadership skills that you learned in recovery. Stop hiding because your contribution matters.